In recent years, we've seen a great shift in the business world towards a focus on corporate social responsibility. But what does that really mean? Is that just more corporate jargon intended to put consumers at ease? We've seen enough corporate disasters in recent years to question whether companies really care about their impact on the world. But maybe they shouldn't have to. How responsible should companies be for human rights abuses or environmental fallout? These are for-profit organizations, after all. They have shareholders to answer to. Perhaps when things go wrong, that's just the cost of doing business. I'm Sarah Childress, and today, for our latest Frontline Roundtable, we've invited two people who have wrestled with these questions in different ways. Christine Bader, a scholar and lecturer at Columbia University, and the author of the book, The Evolution of a Corporate Idealist, When Girl Meets Oil. It's about her work at the oil giant BP. We also have Arvind Ganeshan, director of the Business and Human Rights Division at Human Rights Watch, who works to expose abuses by corporations and set new guidelines for accountability. So I want to jump right in and talk a little bit about the state of corporate social responsibility as it is today. Today, lots of companies talk about corporate responsibility, but that wasn't even a notion a few decades ago. Um, you know, it seems like companies operated pretty much with impunity. So Arvind, you know, you know a lot of the history of this. What was the pivotal moment when things really started to change? I think it was probably around 1998 to 2000. There had just been a lot of exposures and scandals regarding companies. So you had issues with Shell in Nigeria or BP in Colombia in the oil industry, where they had serious issues around human rights problems with their security forces. And then at the same time, you were getting exposés about people like Kathy Lee Gifford and The Gap and apparel problems in Central America and other parts of the world. And I think that really started the momentum towards getting companies to pay attention to human rights issues and to highlight that they had human rights responsibilities as well. Companies have figured out that they always need to act like somebody is watching, in part because now somebody's always watching. But there's still not a lot of laws that bind companies to good behavior, right? I mean, I know we have the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and, and that you know prohibits companies from engaging in bribery. But there are not a lot of other laws preventing other abuses, right? No, and, and this is, I mean, this is one of the fundamental problems, but it's slowly changing as well. I mean, it's, it was completely right to ban bribery abroad in the United States in the late 70s, but it took years for other countries to take on that role. And even today, governments and companies are very resistant to having laws in place that might make it illegal to be involved in serious human rights abuses abroad, like forced labor, torture, or killings, or something like that, which seems kind of bizarre in 2014, but that's the reality. But why is that? It comes down to two very fundamental issues. One is that companies, as a general rule, do not want to be regulated at all. And second, in the last 20 years, certainly, governments have been very, very reluctant to regulate the private sector. And that is a big part of the reason why the whole business and human rights movement has kind of come up is because the two key actors really weren't doing their job. But that's changing today. I mean, there are slowly but surely more and more laws coming into place. They're modest at present, but they're certainly more than there were even a few years ago. One point I would debate with Arvind, too, is the point about companies not wanting regulation at all. I think companies do want regulation when it is smart and it is enforced consistently. But that's often not the case. Wait, so you you think that companies really want regulation? They want more rules? Companies want guidance where there is none. And so the incidents that Arvind pointed to 
of um, BP and Columbia, Shell in Nigeria, the lack of guidance around how are companies supposed to conduct their security in places where governance is weak or governments are recovering from conflict, that's what led those companies to get together with Arvind and his organization, Human Rights Watch, and then other human rights groups and the U.S. and U.K. governments to get together and say, look, there, there is no guidance. Can we please come up with some guidance? Because there's no regulation. We don't have any. So they came up with a code of conduct, the Voluntary Principles on Security and Human Rights, that companies are using because it's actually helpful. I would actually disagree with that. On issues like human rights or labor issues or environmental issues or anti-corruption issues, there is almost no history of companies acting out of enlightened self-interest. I think the precursor to all of that is people exposing that there are serious problems out there that create a kind of public momentum to change. And the response may be the voluntary initiatives that Christine and I were talking about and have been involved in, but there is still a heavy resistance to regulation, and that's happened today. I mean, there is there are voluntary initiatives, for example, in the oil industry that allow companies to disclose what they're paying to governments. And there are also laws being proposed to do the exact same thing. And in the U.S., for example, the companies that support the voluntary measure have vociferously and legally opposed the regulatory measure that would do the same thing. So I'm a bit more skeptical about the willingness of, of industries to be regulated on these grounds, even though I agree with the point that in general they want a stable business environment. Mm-hmm. Christine, you worked for BP for many years. So give us a, a real-world example. What was happening at BP? How did they think about operating in, in other countries? Sure. So I can give the example of my first assignment in BP when I joined in 2000, and that was on a liquefied natural gas project in West Papua. Um, which is, you know, a pretty remote environment, um, and there's not a lot of government presence. And this was a place where the military had a national mandate to protect the project that we were working on. It was a massive gas project. But this was a place where the military was not liked. We realized that establishing a big military presence there would cause a lot of social strife, as had happened in other parts of that province on other extractive projects. So one of the first things that we did was reach out to human rights experts to try to help figure out some guidance for, you know, there's no roadmap here. You've talked before about your experience when you first got an up-close look at what what was going to happen with the project. You know, one of the challenges, I think, of multinational business is that very few executives ever bear witness to the impact of their decisions on people and communities at the tippy toes of their supply chain. So when I first joined BP, I, of course, understood theoretically what the company did. You know, we keep cars moving and keep the lights on. Um, But it was really my first trip out to Indonesia where I really saw with my own eyes the impact of our work, which made me commit to trying to make sure that we were respecting international human rights principles and doing everything we could um, uh, to make sure that communities were protected. So at that point, to get out there from Jakarta, from Indonesia's capital, I had to take a commercial flight, an overnight commercial flight, and then uh, a small seaplane and then a helicopter the rest of the way into sight. And that last stretch 
in the helicopter, you know, all you could see was very dense rainforest and not a lot of human settlement. And then just on the horizon, I could make out the rig. And there was a village nearby of 127 households that was going to have to relocate to make way for the plant. And I had in my mind, you know, the image of what this facility was going to look like. I'd seen the sketches, and it was going to be a modern, gleaming, silver industrial facility. And I started to get really uncomfortable. I had just joined the company, and I thought, oh, my goodness, we're bringing such dramatic change to this place. I I don't know if I feel comfortable being part of this. But luckily, I was there with one of the senior vice presidents in the company uh, who was in charge of environmental policy, and she immediately saw the distress on my face, and she looked at me, and she said, that's exactly why we're here. We're going to get this right. But ultimately, and you talk about sort of how you work to to minimize harm, but ultimately BP did end up clearing the forest. They did end up moving um, those people who had been living there. Yes, that's right. People get resettled all the time. I live in Manhattan, and people have to move for the 2nd Avenue subway, but... There are international standards for resettlement. People have to be consulted to make sure that they understand their options. People have to be compensated if their livelihoods are impacted. One of the things that we did out there in Indonesia was we started the consultation process over again because it wasn't clear that ARCO, which had made the discovery, had actually done consultations to international standards. So we found the guy who literally wrote the book on the resettlement standards for the World Bank and hired him um, to advise us on how to do the resettlement to international standards. And the folks who lived there ended up picking two different sites to move to, which were much better than the site that they were supposed to move to when we got there. It had much better water access, and this was a fishing community. Um, So we did it to international standards. I think what Christine describes actually also illustrates a more fundamental point. All the all the steps BP took are steps it chose to do, and not ones that it was necessarily obliged to do. And and in our experience, and as recently as uh, the last couple of years, we've seen say mine sites in Uganda and elsewhere where none of those steps were taken because there was no obligation to do so, and instead people for exploration would literally show up inside people's houses and start digging without any consultation or anything. And I think it goes to the fundamental point that if if a company chooses to do the right thing, nothing prevents it from doing it, but there are many companies out there that aren't obliged to do the right thing, and they don't. And that's why you know the Indonesia project was over 10 years ago. And that's why, in, a, in our own experience, we're still documenting situations of, of oil, gas, mining companies, and other companies who, to this day, are, are making these mistakes, in part because they haven't put the policies, procedures, and standards in place to do the right thing, but in part, there's no real requirement for them to do so. And, and the big change has to be that, that those expectations have to be understood everywhere. And, and it goes back to your earlier point about anti-corruption law. Uh, it doesn't, anti-corruption law doesn't mean people aren't going to bribe. It just means they're going to be a lot more careful about it, and they're going to be held accountable, hopefully, if, if they do. And and those are that's the value of having standard rules that are slowly developing around the world. It's so true that BP wasn't obliged to take all those steps and that other companies aren't doing so because they aren't obliged. But it is still extraordinary to me how companies don't understand that this is in their best interest because if they don't, their operations get disruptive, which not only causes harm to people, but it costs them a lot of money.
Mm-hmm. And what about the obvious counter argument here that companies are here to make a profit and it's not really their responsibility to worry about economic fallout or other abuses that they might be uh, sort of not directly responsible for? You know, where is the line? I mean, in a lot of the the areas we cover, they are directly responsible. And I'll give you an example. So in, in Canada right now, uh, the Canada has the largest mining industry in the world. About 60% of the publicly listed mining companies in the world are in Canada, even though it's only about 0.04% of the population overall. And there have been a series of issues with major Canadian mining companies, notably Barrick and Hunt Bay, where they've been accused, and, and in the case of Barrick, acknowledged that their own security staff were engaged in a pattern of gang rapes a few years ago. And they're actually taking a number of steps to address that problem. And so the, the question isn't so much whether or not it's the, it's the role of business to business and ignore kind of the, what they might consider the peripheral elements of it. It's that it isn't appropriate to go do business abroad if that involves things like sexual violence, gang rapes, or child labor, or forced labor, or other things. And it's in those cases where there's a clear responsibility to do something about it. And, and I mean, take, take where I am in Washington, D.C., or in New York, or elsewhere. I mean, if you heard that a department store or somebody else had, had a bunch of security guards in the store that were gang-raping women or they were hiring children or something, people would generally be outraged and something would be done about it. The difference is it's abroad. The laws don't really have the scope to cover them. The local governments may not pay attention or may even be part of the problem. So just because it's far away doesn't obviate the responsibility anymore in those cases. Christine, you you did this in China, making the case to companies that they need to worry about these issues. This is a Chinese company that was partnering with BP, and you had to convince them to conduct their project up to BP standards. So tell us what happened there and how they reacted. Let's see. Well, I'll tell you the story of when I first got there. I was working on a BP joint venture with Sinopec, one of China's state energy companies. We were going to be building a large petrochemicals facility near a town with a population of about 30,000 people, and we would be bringing in a migrant construction workforce that would peak at about 15,000, which, you know, could be a little disruptive. So I was there to make sure that the dormitories were up to international standards, to conduct a social impact assessment, which was a study that we were doing in part for the report, but actually more importantly as a vehicle to engage with local communities and local party officials. So I barreled in there saying, okay, we are here to protect the human rights of our workers and communities. I'd never lived in China before. I'd never worked uh, with a Chinese company before. And as you can imagine, that didn't go very well. I I didn't get thrown out of the country or anything, but people just looked at me blankly like, we're a chemicals company. What are you talking about? So finally, I had to shut up for a while and listen to how people talked about their work, what motivated them, what they were worried about, what they were paid to do. And so finally, when I came back and said, okay, I understand that you guys want this to be a world-class model project. If that is the case, these are the standards that world-class model projects use, so we need to use them here. And they were like, oh, okay, why didn't you say so? So how do you get companies to go beyond national law 
and in some cases, you know, where national law doesn't even exist, go beyond what local practice is. Um, and I have found in my experience that I have to try lots of different arguments and tools in my toolkit um, to make the case. The best outcome for us would be to not have to do this work at all. So to the extent that companies can be more proactive and preventative to make sure that when they, when they do their work or they set up operations anywhere, that they've already taken into account potentially human rights problems is better for everyone. So we, we always try to promote the idea of proactiveness and, and doing the kind of due diligence and the kind of preparation to prevent these things from happening. Because if it gets to the point where Human Rights Watch is starting to research you as a company or an institution, then something has already gone pretty wrong. And it's always better to have standards in place. I could not agree more. The things that I think Arvind and I both want to see companies do are exactly the kind of proactive due diligence that he was just talking about. And I think that sometimes the challenge for companies is to get their head around the fact that the stuff that we want them to do on human rights and sustainability is this deeply unsexy stuff of corporate process. This is not the kind of thing that you can take a photo of for their website or for the sustainability report. We're talking about embedding human rights considerations into how they allocate their resources and you know what they do before they decide which markets to go into, which products to launch. That brings up an interesting question. I know there's a lot of consumers today who are interested in social responsibility, making sure that the companies that they give their money to are are doing things the right way. So if these are internal processes, as you say, deeply unsexy processes that companies are, are putting in place, how can a consumer tell whether a company is genuine? One thing that consumers could look at, and I'll put this forward and then I'll caveat it a bit, is whether companies have signed on to some of these voluntary initiatives. We mentioned the voluntary principles on security and human rights for the extractive industries. There's the global network initiative for the tech sector. Uh, And then in the wake of the Rana Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh, two different initiatives have sprouted up, committing brands to invest in factory safety. Now, I say that, but then the challenge is that these initiatives vary widely in terms of what they actually require companies to do once they've signed on. And and here, I mean, I would look at the evolution of anti-corruption law, because prior to 1977, for example, when the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act passed, I'm certain there were plenty of companies that would voluntarily not bribe foreign officials abroad. Uh, But now that the law is enforced, and more importantly, now that similar laws have gone into force in other countries around the world, the public would probably be more comfortable with the fact that it's illegal than just rely on the enlightened self-interest or goodwill of individual companies. So in the evolution of standards on human rights, I think we, we do need to transition from those companies that are, that are clearly trying to do the right thing into an environment where everybody is obliged to do the right thing. Even if there are laws in place to to regulate or address this behavior at the end of the day one of the one of the key things i've learned is if the leadership of a company doesn't believe in these issues in human rights issues or protecting human rights or acting responsibly and by extension doesn't incentivize the staff of their company to do it then it's not going to happen 
And so laws are obviously important when things go wrong or to make sure things go right. But without internal leadership to drive this forward, you're not going to see progress. And that's why even with strong anti-corruption laws, you're still seeing multi-billion dollar settlements of companies. And what you learn at the end of the day is that there was a culture of tolerating or even promoting bribery. So internal leadership is crucial, not just in companies, but in any institution to see the right things happen. Part of the challenge of getting this right, particularly inside companies, but I think more broadly, is that no one gets rewarded for what doesn't happen. And so how do we incentivize the right behavior? So one woman who I interviewed is a supply chain manager for a big multinational, and she told me how livid she was when one of her company's internal awards, which, you know, are really prestigious in a big company, went to one of her colleagues who managed a big safety disaster because she was like, are you kidding me? I've prevented like 20 of those. <laughs> but it's really hard to reward from that. And I, and I think that a lot of corporate responsibility or safety or ethics work is about preventing bad things from happening. So I'm always on the lookout for how do you better reward prevention and and the absence of bad things happening. I think it's quite a challenge. Well, we're we're coming up at the uh, the end of our time here, but I do have um, one final question. I'd love to hear from both of you on this. Given the rapid change that we've seen over the past few decades in this environment, what can we expect to see in the next five or ten years? I think what you are seeing is a number of, of governments are starting to regulate elements of how businesses should act responsibly, and, and most notably what they're doing is they're putting rules in place that are requiring companies to disclose on various things that relate to human rights. So in Canada and the EU and the U.S., there are rules about oil, gas, and mining companies disclosing their payments to governments or disclosing uh, whether or not they're sourcing conflict minerals from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And in Europe, there are more expectations that, that publicly listed companies have to disclose whether or not they have human rights policies in place. And so I think you're going to see kind of a slow and steady growth of a requirement to disclose. And if I go even further over the next 10 years, you may even see rules that say, look, if, if you don't have those policies in place or if you do something wrong, you, you are going to be held accountable for them. I mean, they're very nascent and still controversial treaty negotiations at the U.N. on on regulating transnational companies, which which are going to be controversial, but I think it's a long-term sign that rules are coming. And, and for companies, it's, it's better to pay attention to that trend and get ahead of it than, than wait for it to happen. Mm-hmm. So one area that I think we'll see some progress on in the next few years is about definition and clarity of what we're actually expecting of companies. And I think that's where the emergence of human rights as a framework to talk about corporate responsibility is really important because with human rights, there are international instruments. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a set of 30 rights and freedoms. And the problem with corporate responsibility and sustainability is that there is no universal declaration. And that's why you get so much eye rolling when you even start to talk about this topic is that... Corporate responsibility is kind of whatever a company thinks it should be. And then finally, exactly what Arvind talked about is about transparency and disclosure. I think the increased level of transparency can only be a good thing because we all need a more sophisticated understanding of how businesses really operate and what some of the internal discussions are and why companies keep getting this wrong, even though from the outside it seems so obvious why they need to get it right. 
That was Arvind Ganeshan, director of the Business and Human Rights Division at Human Rights Watch, and Christine Bader, a lecturer at Columbia University and author of The Evolution of a Corporate Idealist, When Girl Meets Oil. I'm Sarah Childress. You can download more Frontline Roundtables on iTunes and watch Firestone and the Warlord, our investigation with ProPublica into one corporation's long-standing relationship with the war-torn nation of Liberia. It's available online anytime at pbs.org/frontline. <laughs>